All right, well, last time that I taught, we taught through uh, Matthew chapter 1, up to verse 17. It's on the genealogy of Jesus, found in the Gospel according to Matthew. And is, as usual, we're going to do a little review of last time. So we're going to see how much you took in, how much you remember, and see how much you can, uh, you know, teach others. Because the whole point of being taught something, not just to keep it to yourself. I picture someone who's being taught as like they're a sponge. They soak up this water, but they don't soak it up for nothing. Soak up to be squeezed out. And as you are taught the Word of God, you're not only responsible for what you know and obeying it, but you're responsible, according to your ability, to teach other people the same thing. Whether they be a believer or an unbeliever. Okay, so let's, let me just ask you some questions. If you think you know the answer, just raise your hand. I'll call on you and we'll, we'll see how much you know. Can anyone name, because I went through this quite a bit in the last message, any specific types of sinners who are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that's found in Matthew? The ones that I mentioned. What's that? Adulterer, okay. Daniel? What was that? Err? Oh, okay. That they, they, they erred? Okay. What were you going to say? I was going to say the exact Oh, okay. Good. Good. No, I'm talking about the, what they were actually involved in. Oh. Yeah, what they were involved in. My wife said adultery. She's referring to David, obviously. Um. There's also uh, prostitutes. Yeah, there were two prostitutes in Jesus' genealogy. There's also a, a fornicator in Jesus' genealogy. That's Judah. Uh, a murderer. David was in his genealogy. Two Gentiles were in Jesus' genealogy. And uh, there's also quite a few wicked kings in Jesus' genealogy. Okay? Uh, whose genealogy is found in Matthew, and whose is found in Luke as far as Jesus' parents are concerned? Be a very, very important. Go ahead. Well, in uh, Matthew, it shows the lineage of the kings. So that would be in the, the genealogy of Joseph. Right. And then in Luke, uh, it shows the actual bloodline uh, going back to uh, Adam. Right. And that's actually the uh, genealogy of Mary. Right. Who's That's the only blood Jesus has. He doesn't have Joseph's blood. That's good. Now, what, what, were, what were the two requirements require, regarding the lineage or the ancestry does the Messiah need to meet? What are the two requirements he needs to meet? Tracy kind of just touched on it a second ago. What are the two requirements the Messiah needs to meet as far as his lineage? Jenna? That's one of them. The legal holder of the Jewish uh, kingdom, the throne, Jewish throne. And it has to be through the actual lineage of the kings who were the kings in the past. Daniel? The bloodline of David. Those are the two requirements. And he meets those two requirements. Now, one of the reasons why these two requirements are separate, I mean, they could be together, couldn't they? But one of the reasons they have to be separate because of the curse of Jeconiah. And the curse of Jeconiah was that none of his bloodline descendants would ever sit on the throne again. That's why they have to be separate. And we have Jesus meeting this requirement. So overall, what, what, was, you know, what was the title and the main point 
of the last message. Daniel? Okay. Well, that, that was what we thought, though. What was the main theme, and what was the title of the last message? Anyone remember? No? That, yes? That's, you're getting there, but the King of Grace is what I titled it. You look at who's in his genealogy here. You see a picture of his grace here. That he's allowing these people to be in his genealogy. shows you a little bit of his grace and his forgiveness and, and that he, he realizes what people are. Okay, now we're going to go into Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let's go ahead and read it. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. first thing I want to focus on here is this word betrothed. Okay? It's important to understand what this word betrothed means so we can understand why and how Joseph is responding to her in such a way. And recently, a, man, a young man emailed me uh, asking me a lot of questions about what is permissible within a intimate relation within a marriage. He's asking all these questions about married couples, and I was wondering why he's asking all these questions. He's not even married himself. I was real curious about it. But he, he's a young man who's been going down a path of becoming more Jewish. You know, he, he wants to follow the Jewish laws and, and so on and so forth. And one of these things, uh, according to him, of becoming Jewish is being betrothed to somebody. And he thought that being betrothed meant that he could act like he was already married with her. And, uh, you know, I strongly counseled him that this was wrong and that he needs to repent. Um, but one of, his, one of his confusions here, you see the word betrothed here in verse 18, and then you see in verse 20, the angel says, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. The angel's already calling her his wife. So he's had some confusion about this. But as we, as we go through what betrothed means, you'll see he's dead wrong, and it could be deadly for him. So betrothed, what does this word mean? Well, in the modern sense, it means to be engaged, to be courting, to be pledged to be married to somebody. The Greek word behind the English word betrothed can literally mean to woo and win. Well, why would you try to woo and win someone if you already won them? They're already yours. It make no sense. But when two people are betrothed to each other, they, can, they, are, they are already considered husband and wife, as you see uh, in the Bible, as an angel called Mary, Joseph's wife. Yet there has been no marriage ceremony, there has been no consummation of the marriage, 
and the two that are betrothed are not living together yet. This is the way it worked in the Jewish tradition. And in Jewish tradition, the two that are betrothed are betrothed for a period of one year. So for one year, you're betrothed to this person. You're not married to them. You're not married to them in our sense of our culture says married. You're not uh, living with them, and you haven't consummated the marriage yet. And the purpose of this one-year engagement was to prove the faithfulness of both people involved. To prove their faithfulness. If the man who is betrothed to the woman gets another woman pregnant during this period of, of betrothment, that means that he has not been faithful. And uh, if he has not been faithful, the marriage is called off. But there's no divorce in the legal sense or in the biblical sense of the word. There is something called an annulment. And an annulment basically says that the marriage has been broken off and that it was never truly official. You know, in the modern times, uh, you know, we, we have this word annulment, we use it as well, and people who have actually gone through the ceremony, who are actually living together, can get their marriage annulled if they meet certain requirements and certain circumstances. Uh, it's probably going to be different for each day. I'm not really going to get into too many details with that. I'll let you search it out for yourself. But one reason would be if they didn't know it, um, but they married, they were brother and sister biologically, and they didn't know it. They, they had a legal, uh, you know, out, I guess you can say, to get the marriage annulled instead of divorced. And an annulled marriage is none of those, well, I owe you, uh, you know, uh, this money now each month because you are my wife and I was your husband and I have this job and you're depending upon me and I have to give it. So the annulment gets rid of those things. And uh, if, if during the betrothed period one of them is found unfaithful, you're not living together yet, you haven't consummated a marriage, you can get the marriage annulled according to Jewish tradition. Just like with the man, if the woman is found unfaithful during this period of time and is found with child as a result an annulment can be issued as well. And not only is an annulment a possibility during this betrothed period, but if you, you break this betrothment and are found unfaithful during this time, either whichever person is unfaithful or if both are unfaithful, they can both be stoned to death for their unfaithfulness. Stoned to death. And that's one of the reasons we see Joseph is trying to put away her privately or secretly. If you'd like to read up more on the Jewish laws and the punishments for these issues, you can read Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verses 13 through 30. Well, Joseph eventually found out about Mary's pregnancy. And wait, let me ask you this. How do you think he felt about this? Betrayed. Betrayed. Yes. He probably felt brokenhearted. I mean, I don't know how long they were betrothed for before this, this happened. It could have been six months, it could have been very close to the end, it could have been very at the beginning, but how, when it was, he loved her, and he thought she loved him, and now he's thinking, well, she's, she didn't cry out rape, she didn't come to the elders of the city and say, I was raped, and have that man put to death, so obviously she did it willingly, and now she's with child, and it's not my child, so he's, he's probably pretty upset about this. The woman he loved got pregnant by another man, supposedly, at least from his point of view at this point in time. But no matter what your reaction might have been, whether it was sadness or whether it was anger, or whether you responded the way he responded, you would have been brokenhearted. But could you ever 
demand the life of the woman you were going to marry. Because if he didn't put her away privately or secretly, that's what would have happened. She would have been stoned to death at the city gates for everyone to see, to make her an example. So other women would not follow in her footsteps. Now, I'm not judging God's law here. Obviously, he's in these laws for a reason. But put yourself in the shoes. Would you be able to put her to death for this? A woman you love? Obviously, she betrayed you. But how would you respond? Well, Joseph couldn't do that. He couldn't do it. And the Bible, because of such a response as that, the Bible called him a just man. But what does the Bible mean when it calls someone just? Well, it means that uh, he's righteous. All the translations would translate it as righteous here. He was righteous. And someone who is righteous or just is someone who obeys God. Well, if being just or righteous means you're obeying God, then obeying God must be possible for man, right? It must be possible. And does Joseph have some kind of special ability that we don't have? He sure doesn't. And if he can obey God and be a just man and a righteous man, then guess what? You and I can obey God and be a just man or a righteous man. Not only can we, but we should. And not only should we obey God, but if we don't obey God, according to the Bible, you will not enter the kingdom of God in the end. Hebrews 5.9 says this, He became the author of eternal life to all those who obey Him. Who obey Him. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 says this, Now by this we know that we know Him. Now how do we know that we know Him? By this. If we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, but doesn't keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. So by this we know that we know Him. By this we know we're in Him. We're obeying Him. We're obeying Him. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that's in the world is not of the Father. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24, that the man who hears his sayings and does them, he will liken him to a man who built his house upon the rock. So there's a doing involved here. A doing. Joseph obeyed. You can obey. You should obey. If you don't obey... Well, you don't want to know what's going to happen. Let me just give you a, a little uh, thing here, a little play on words here. Look at the word responsibility. Responsibility. It's a combination of two words. Can you guess what two words they are? Ability and response. All i got to do is take the, the I out there and put ability here. Responsibility. So we have the ability. The reason we have responsibility to God and His commands is because we have ability to respond. 
to His commands properly. And if we, if we don't have ability to respond, then we don't have responsibility. But responsibility brings guilt. And guilt brings condemnation. But if there is no ability to respond, there is no responsibility. And therefore there is no guilt and therefore there is no condemnation. The only out you have in this equation here is if you're ignorant. But the ignorance is taken away because according to Romans 2, we all have a conscience given us to us by God with its law written upon our hearts. So responsibility, if you don't respond to the ability that God's given you properly then that brings guilt. And guilt brings condemnation. But oftentimes what I hear in, in you know, the visible version of Christianity in the world today is that I have no responsibility because I have no ability to obey God. That's a contradiction in terms. Responsibility means you have ability to respond the right way. And because you have the ability to respond the right way, therefore you have guilt and you have condemnation if you don't respond the right way. But guess what? If you respond the right way, you, ha- you don't have no more condemnation, you have no more guilt. Because our past lack of responsibility is washed away by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The moment you forsake your sinful ways, trust in Christ, and decide to be responsible for what He commands you to do. That's the way it works in God's kingdom. So for those who say, I have no ability to respond, it's ridiculous. If you have no ability to respond, then you have no responsibility. If you have no responsibility, you have no guilt, you have no condemnation. And therefore, if God were to condemn someone who had no ability to respond, he'd be unjust. But he only condemns people because they have guilt and because they have the ability to respond, therefore having responsibility. That's the way it works in God's kingdom. And Joseph was being responsible, and he was being righteous, he was being just. And we see just one characteristic of a just, a righteous person in this situation here. They love others above themselves. They love others above themselves. They are selfless. They're not necessarily considered with me, 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 my rights. What about my feelings in this situation? I demand that she be killed. He didn't really care about that. He cared more about her than he did about himself. He was being selfless. Well, you know, that's what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. If you'll come after me, if you'll be my disciple, you must deny yourself daily, take up your cross daily, and follow me. He was dying to his own rights. See, righteous or just people don't always say, what about me? What about my rights? When you became a Christian, guess what? You got rid of your rights. You got rid of them. That's when Jesus said, when they slap you on one side, turn the other cheek. Now, what do you do with slapping me? I'm going to slap you back. He got rid of his rights. For us. I mean, he he had the right to call upon 12 legions of angels if he wanted to. He had the right to people who were going to crucify him to slap him out of the way and send him straight to hell if he wanted to. And because we've sinned, we have no right to demand anything of him. But that's the way Joseph 
respond. And I can imagine he probably had some friends who may have heard of Mary's unfaith- or supposed unfaithfulness and may have tried to egg him on. Come on, Joseph, you know she deserves to die. He probably had a little bit of peer pressure. Yeah, because there are lots of people who were in that Jewish time, especially the leaders. Remember when the adulterer was thrown at Jesus' feet? Remember that? What did they say to, what did they say to you? Well, what are you going to do, Jesus? They eventually threw the stones and walked away. But he gave her... A righteous person doesn't always give someone what they deserve. You understand that? Sometimes they just extend mercy instead. They extend mercy. And they are merciful to others because they have received such great mercy from Almighty God. Look what Jesus said to the woman who was washing his feet with her tears and her hair. He who has been forgiven much loves much. To the extent you understand the mercy that the God... I'm not saying go out and sin so you can get more mercy from God and then love God more. That's ridiculous. That's not the way it works. But once you realize how merciful God's been to you, you truly realize that, you'll understand how merciful you need to be to others. You'll understand that. And that was what was going on with Joseph before he found out that Mary was pregnant with the Holy Spirit. He was being merciful to Mary. He couldn't bear to give Mary what she deserved for supposedly cheating on him. He gave her what she didn't deserve if she cheated on him. That was mercy. He was going to put her away privately or secretly. He wouldn't have her stoned to death for her supposed sins. And then once Joseph received the truth from the angel of the Lord, he submitted to God's will no matter what the pain or cost was to himself. So he decided to put her away privately, secretly, and then the angel came and spoke to him. You know, I'm sure that the community looked upon him as a coward. But first of all, not putting her to death. And for second of all, taking her as his wife. Because, let's face it, most people didn't believe them. Most people didn't believe them. And they both heard from an angel and that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many people have been pregnant who are virgins in all of history? One. I mean, we're not just talking about believing someone getting healed here or, or something like that. We're talking about a miracle of miracles. You, you, can't, you can't say medicine did this one. Impossibility. It didn't come out of thin air. I guess if you believe in evolution, you can think it happened like this because they believe something came from nothing anyway. But, uh, you know, this is a miracle of miracles. What would people say about Joseph? That he's betrothed to this woman who got pregnant from someone else, and they took her as his wife, and then took the child as his own child. They were looked upon him as a coward. But no matter all these doubting and troubling thoughts, Joseph obeyed God. He obeyed God. I'll tell you, God sure did a good, a good job picking out the perfect people as earthly parents, didn't he? Yeah. For his son. He sure did. And what would be the name that Joseph and Mary would give to this child? Well, they were called, they were told by the angel to call him Jesus. They were told by the angel to call him Jesus. Now, what, what would, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph are both Hebrews, okay? They're both Israelites. So the angel probably didn't speak to him in English, okay? He would have spoke to him in a language they would have understood, probably spoke to him in Hebrew. And what they would have heard the angel said 
if he would have spoke to me in Hebrew, is Yeshua. That's the name they would have heard. Was Yeshua. So they didn't speak or understand 21st century English. Now, where did the word Jesus come from? Well, Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek word Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Okay, and let me explain to you what transliteration is here. I'll give you another example that you may understand. That word may be foreign to some of you. We've talked about this word in the past, this fellowship. We're talking about transliteration. It's different than translation. Translation is taking the word in a certain language. Let's take the word agape. Okay? Agape. Now, a translation of the Greek word, this is the English transliteration, actually, of, of agape, but to translate the Greek word agape would be translated as love. That's the translation of it. It's taking the word in one language and bringing it to another language with the meaning of the word. But agape, as I just spelled it right here, is the English transliteration of the Greek word. Now, let me just give you what the Greek word looks like so you can kind of see here. Agape. That's the Greek word. So you got alpha, gamma, alpha, pi, eta. So this is the Greek word, and this is the English transliteration of that word. You understand how that works? The translation of this word would be love. That would be the translation. Okay, so we have the, uh, the Hebrew word Yeshua, and this is the English transliteration of Yeshua. That's the English transliteration of that. And then we have Iesus, which is the Greek transliteration of Yeshua. And then from Iesus, we get Jesus. And that's usually the way it works when it comes to going between different languages. You don't, when someone has a proper name, you don't translate it. You transliterate it. You just bring it into the next language and whatever letters they're using in that language. Okay? So that's the way Jesus and, and Yeshua, this word means well it was the first it was first used in the Bible. The word Yeshua was first used in the Bible in Numbers thirteen sixteen. And in Numbers thirteen sixteen, you have Moses changing the name of someone. Okay? This name Yeshua was given to Hosea by Moses. Now how did English translators transliterate Yeshua into English? Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun. He was given that name Joshua by Moses. And this is the first use of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Okay? And Yeshua is a combination of two words. Two Hebrew words. Those two Hebrew words are Yahweh, which is the name of God. And number two, Hosea, Joshua's original name. And Hosea simply means salvation. That's what Hosea means. So Yeshua, which is a combination of Yahweh and Hosea, means Yahweh, or God, is salvation. So Yeshua means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. So we have this transliterating going on here. Okay? 
So since Jesus is a Greek transliteration of Yeshua, and Jesus is an English transliteration of Jesus, it follows then that the name Jesus literally means Yahweh or God is salvation. That's what his name means. Yahweh is salvation. And as a side note, this is a side note here, I don't want to get too much into this, but the English letter J wasn't around in the English language or any language until about the 14th century. 14th century, the letter J came about. Okay? And it wasn't used extensively until sometime in the, around the 17th century, mid-17th century, after the first edition of the King James Version of the Bible, 1611. In fact, you go to the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, you'll see no J's at all in the whole book. Not one J. So what you'll see is when you see uh, names like James, Jacob, Joseph, Jude, Judas, Joshua, Judah, Jesus, they all have the English letter I as the first letter in their name. Not J. It's I. But this, does this mean somehow the devil got in there and corrupted the Bible and, and because we're using a J now instead of an I? No. No. The English language is an evolving language. It's a live language. It, make, it changes sometimes. Let's face it. I mean, there, there's been times, uh, well, J was added to the, the alphabet, but that was, that was the last letter added to the alphabet, English alphabet. And I don't perceive any other letters being added, but who knows? We could get a 27th letter for all I know in the future. But we've had word spelling changes. Take the word Savior. In Australia and English, they'll spell it O-U-R at the end of the word. Not just I-O-R, I-O-U-R at the end of Savior in England and in Australia, even now, even today. You still do that? There you go. See, some people have different preference. Uh, here in America, we spell it S-A-V-I-O-R. No U. Uh, there's been words that have changed definitions throughout times. One word I can think of off the top of my head is the word replenish. You know the word replenish, you go back to the 16th century, it meant fill for the first time. That's what it originally meant. Get a dictionary from back then, you'll see it means fill for the first time. And over a period of time, it, would, it, would, it started to have a secondary definition of fill again. And then over time, it, it, that became the primary definition. Over time, then the first definition that was around to begin with is gone now. You won't see it in dictionaries. That's why you'll see the King James Bible. You see, it says uh, in our Bible, in New King James, it says the Lord filled the earth. But in the King James, it says the Lord replenished. So you have these people come along who believe that the, in old earth, and they'll say, look, he filled again, replenish. But what they're doing, they're taking a, a Bible that was translated in the 17th century, using the definitions of the words back then, and they're trying to impose modern-day definitions upon it. So you can see the English language changes. Words change. Definitions change. Uses change. Some words just become obsolete. But if you feel more comfortable calling Jesus Yeshua or you want to call him Jesus, uh, that's fine with me. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to tell you this, that if you, if you think it's more holy to call him Yeshua, or more holy to call him Jesus, I think you're kind of being a little hypocritical, because you don't use the Hebrew language or Greek language for any other words. Why are you using it for that word? This seems kind of hypocritical to me. And Jesus' name, the name of Jesus is no less valid, just because the English letter J is used instead of I. It's no less valid. Okay? So either way, the name Jesus means, if you go all the way back to the original word in Hebrew, it means Yahweh saves, or God saves. Then there's the name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us, or with us is God. God is dwelling with man once again. 
So all these things, these, the name of Jesus was given, the Emmanuel, all points to the deity of Jesus Christ. That he has no biological, no biological father, human father, and therefore God the Father is his only father, and that Jesus is God in the flesh. That doesn't mean, however, that he is the Father in the flesh. He is God the Son in the flesh. The Father isn't the Son. The Son isn't the Father. Jesus can't be his own Father, and God the Father can't be his own Son. That would be illogical. To be your own Father, or be your own Son, or to be both at the same time, are impossibilities. Jesus is the Son of God the Father. They are not the same person. And that's why they're able to communicate with each other, and so on and so forth. So Emmanuel is God the Son in human flesh dwelling with man. For the first time since the Garden of Eden. If God dwelling with man. Now I want to go to Luke chapter 1 for a second. Because Luke kind of touches on some details uh, that Matthew doesn't. And this will kind of give us the whole story, I guess you can say. Or the rest of the story as uh, that guy from NPR used to say. Paul something. Paul Harvey. Harvey, There you go. The rest of the story. Luke chapter 1, we'll start in verse uh, 26. Now it says, in in verse 26, it's now in the sixth month, talking about the sixth month of, uh, of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary rose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed. For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So, what was Mary's response to this uh, greeting from the angel that she was 
favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Did she get prideful? Oh, she was troubled, it says. She was troubled. See, Mary knew that with great commendation, great compliments from an angel to Laura comes great possible responsibility. She didn't want to know what was going to happen next, what he was going to say next. When God looks favorably upon you, he will give you great things to do. Things that may even endanger you or even cost you your life in the end. Things that will cause you to go deeper with him. Just think about what Mary would have been thinking after she was told that she'd be pregnant by the Holy Spirit while betrothed to Joseph. What are people going to think when they find out I am pregnant? They're going to think I'm an adulteress. They're going to think I'm a fornicator. Will I be stoned to death? Because people will think I'm an adulterer? Will people gossip and talk badly about me? What will happen between Joseph, the man I love, and me? These are probably some of the thoughts that were going through her head. And some of these questions that she had in her head are, are possibly why Mary went to spend her first trimester, her first three months of pregnancy, with Elizabeth. And you can find the fact that she spent three months there in Luke 156. But she spent the first three months there. She knew she would find encouragement there. Because she's going to a person who's in her old age, who was barren, and God just did a miracle for her. So she knew, having this miracle under her, she would find encouragement from someone else God had just spoken to and done a miracle for as well. But Mary still had to consider herself of no reputation in order to follow God's will for her life. She had to lay down her own life, what people would think about her, what people would say to, about her, in exchange for what she knew was the truth. So lay it all down. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? And be of no reputation? And not care what anyone thinks, including the Christian community? I'm going to tell you this, whether you want to be or not, you're a fool for somebody. You know, maybe, maybe you're a fool for the world because you care so much for what they will say or think about you. Maybe you're a fool for, for the devil because you're living in sin. Or maybe you're just a fool for sin itself because you're living in sin each day. Personally, I'd rather be a fool for Jesus any day. But you, will be somebody, you are somebody's fool, whether you believe it or not. Secondly, I want to point out in verse 37, nothing's impossible with God. Through the situation, Mary's faith in God increased. She gets to experience God doing the, most, doing the impossible firsthand and secondhand through staying with her, her relative Elizabeth. It's wonderful to experience God in a miraculous way. And we've all experienced it to some degree. If you're a Christian, you've experienced God's miraculous power in some degree. Even just your conversion experience. You know what kind of person you used to be. And if you're a Christian, you know what kind of person you are now. And that God has miraculously changed. I know if I went back to the way I used to be when I was 19 years old, that, I mean, I was pretty far along the path raised with. This is 13 years later? I don't know what I'd be doing right now. All manner of wickedness I'd be living in. I definitely wouldn't have a godly wife and five children. I'd be living my life the way I want. I might even be dead by now, for all I know. The way I was living my life at 19 years old. But praise God for His transforming work in our hearts. 
Now, verse 36 says Elizabeth was the relative of Mary. Well, what, what kind of relative was she? Well, we really don't know. We really don't know. It could be something as close as an aunt or cousin on Mary's mother's side of the family. And it had to be Mary's mother's side because we know that Elizabeth and Zacharias had no direct, close relation to Mary's biological father, who was of the house of the tribe of Judah. Whereas uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias were of the tribe of Levi. There's no direct correlation there. So if they were a close relation, it had to be through Mary's mother. Although we have no information about Mary's mother at all. So we don't know what tribe she was of. But if they were close relatives, it had to be through Mary's side. Because they were both of the tribe of Levi, as you see in Luke 1.5. Or the relation between Mary and Elizabeth could be something as general as and basic as them both being Jewish. This same Greek word is used in Romans 9.3, where Paul says, as he's in distraught about the Jewish people, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And that word countrymen there is the same word used as relatives here. So, we don't know exactly how close she is, but it seems kind of peculiar that Mary would travel to the house of a good friend who is just Jewish, and that's the only relation she has to her. Yeah. Right, I was going to mention that. Yeah, King James' cousin. But like I said, this Greek word is used in Romans 9.3 just to say countrymen. And this is the only time it's translated that I know of as actually cousin, a specific close relative. It's usually times it's translated as kinsman. That's what it's, so kinsman just means your your kin, and it could be something as general as in Romans nine as your countrymen. We see it's talking about Jews there, and Israelites, or it could be something as close as a cousin or an aunt. But it, it, it'd be kind of I mean, and why would Matthew, who's writing to Jews here, why would he even put relative? Because there's no way Jewish readers would assume that Mary's going to talk to some Gentiles here who live in the hill countries of Judah. That doesn't happen. So there's a reason it's put here. So we don't know exactly what kind of relative, but I would assume it's some kind of close relative to some degree. But the Greek word used here does not mean cousin. It doesn't mean aunt. It doesn't mean anything specific like that. Uh, but it can be used in that sense, I suppose. It just means your kin. And my cousin and my aunt are my kin. In fact, we're all kin. Because we all have the same great, 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 grandpappy Adam. So all related in some way. Okay? But it is possible, Elizabeth isn't a relative in our sense of the word, since the Greek word has been used as a broad sense in other passages. But as you said, I was going to bring it up, King James translated as cousin. Which I don't think is... I don't see any reason to interpret it so narrowly like that. There's nothing in the context or in the word itself that makes you say cousin. But it can be. So, all right. Well, that, that's it for this week. And next week we're going to look at Matthew two, and we'll go back to Luke once again as well to get some more details surrounding the birth of Jesus. And uh, does anyone have any questions, objections, comments? Yes. As uh, something just came to me when you were just talking about uh, Mary's bloodline going back to uh, the house of Levi, which is the, the Levites. So isn't that where the uh, high priest... No, Mary's bloodline, through uh, through her father, goes back through the tribe of Judah. Oh, 
Right. Zacharias and Elizabeth go back to the tribe of Levi. That's what I was saying. So she couldn't be related to them as far as her close relatives concerned through her father's family. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are not related to Mary's father as far as close relations concerned. So if she's related to him closely as far as a cousin or aunt, it had to be through her mother's side uh, because it couldn't be through her father's side. I'm kind of confused now because I look in the lineage in Luke chapter 3 in, in Mary's lineage, right? Yep. It says uh, the son of uh, this is, this is the son of Levi. Which verse is that? This is in uh, verse 29. Right. That's, that's too early in the lineage there, brother. you got to go a little further back than that. Oh, Jacob is in verse 34. Oh, this is a different Levi. Yeah, Levi is a very common name. Verse 34 has Jacob. So you have to go before Jacob. That's Judah. So Judah is, is the tribes of Israel. Jacob is, is Israel. So yeah, it's Judah. Yeah, Levi is a very common name. I mean, it's one of the tribes of Israel. So, so is Judah and all the rest of the tribes. But yeah, so the, like I said, Zacharias and, and, and Elizabeth are a tribe of Levi. Uh, but Joseph, Mary, I mean Mary's father is of the tribe of Judah. Yeah. So if there, if there is close relation, like cousin, aunt, whatever, it'd be through uh, Mary's mother's side which we have no information about her at all. Now, if we had information about her, and she wasn't of the tribe of Levi, then we could conclude that Mary, or Zacharias and Elizabeth are not close relation at all. Because they couldn't be. Because they're of the tribe of Levi. Then we can conclude that they were just good friends, and they're relative in the sense that they're both Jews. Yeah. But we have no information about Mary's mom and what tribe she's from. So, yeah. You mentioned that uh, that Joseph probably, you know, how badly he would have felt. Right. And I don't see it here, but do you think um, Mary would have kept this to herself as far as what was revealed to her uh, before it was revealed to Joseph in a dream? Um, I'm not real sure, but she went away right after that happened to her. So I, I'm supposing he didn't find out that she got back. So it would probably be at least three months you know, in because she comes back. You look at verse fifty-six of Luke one. It says that she stayed there for three months, and when she got there, Elizabeth was six months along. So she gave birth to John the Baptist, and she was three months along. She got back after three months. A woman can start to show. So he might have just found out by that. He might have found out through people she's coming back into town, and he found out through that. Uh, and we have no inkling, inclination of what happened, how he found out, what his reaction was, if they had any kind of conversation. Uh, but it, what happened back then is the mother and father found out and they knew their daughter was in trouble usually and then the man used to demand the woman's life stoned to death uh, but Joseph wasn't going to have any part in that alright any other questions or comments anything you want to add any objections you have